Hey everybody, it is episode 117 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is Chris coming at you from Austin, Texas. Since I just released a Friday special edition episode on current events, we're going to be jumping quickly into my discussion today with today's guest. I've got on Alex Hutchinson again, who has been with me several times. He is, of course, of Outside Magazine's column, Sweat Science, Fame, and also wrote the book Endure on basically figuring out where our limits might be as humans. And Alex has now been, this will be his fifth show, he's been on episode 48, 64, 81, and most recently on episode 110 with Christy Ashwanden talking about her new book, Good to Go, and I got several good audience emails and comments about Christy and Alex going head to head on the topic of hydration and whether or not drinking to thirst is a sufficient way to manage your hydration in an endurance event. So that was a fascinating discussion. We're going to redux that today with just Alex. But what I wanted to do with today's episode with Alex is basically to do what I'm going to call a sweat science smorgasbord. Basically, I went through a bunch of his articles from his sweat science column through the years and, of course, emphasizing many of his recent columns. And I just wanted to drill in on some of those and get the science on running from him in a lot of different areas. So we actually start this interview talking about some current events, getting his predictions on Elliot Kipchoge in London versus Mo Farah. But then we cover off on a host of interesting other things, such as how the 4% shoes from Nike actually work, to lots of different little pieces of running form, including how running form for the elite athlete can teach some of us everyday runners how to have better running form, to talking about skiing across Antarctica, like Colin O'Brady recently did, and Alex recently interviewed him before his expedition to get a, to ski across Antarctica in 54 days unsupported. So we cover a lot of interesting things, and so with that, we will go ahead and bring Alex onto the show. All right, welcome Alex Hutchinson back to the show. How are you doing today, Alex? Doing well, Chris. Thanks for having me back on. Yeah, you're now a five-time guest, which is pretty awesome. Hopefully climbing up the leaderboard. How is the weather in the great north? Uh, It's not as cold as I would like, to be honest, because uh, every time it gets up around the freezing mark, we get massive sheets of ice covering my entire lengthy driveway. So it's, uh, yeah, it's it's cold, but actually less cold than I would like. Interesting. So you, you root for it to be a little colder. Minus three is infinitely preferable to plus 0.5. I'm talking Celsius, uh, minus <laughs> right, right. whatever you say. 30 right. is far better than uh, the 33. 33, got it. Yeah, we don't have to face that very often. Usually we're just rooting <laughs> against the cold. And in fact, last week we had, I think it was 91 degrees at the airport. We set a record high for, for a February day. Wow. Pretty nuts. <laughs> so... All right, let's jump in here, and I want to start by talking about my favorite topic with you because we haven't talked about this since it happened, which is one of our favorite athletes, Elliot Kipchoge. We haven't talked about his world record since the world record, at least not, I don't think we've talked about it on the podcast at least, so I wanted to start there with him, also get your predictions for London. What were your reactions to watching Berlin? Yeah, it it, it was 
you know, it was like wish fulfillment, dreams coming true. Like, this is what I dreamed could happen. It could happen. Well, <laughs> it's actually happening. And, and you know, very few of my dreams, even those related to other people come true. So, um, you know, it was great. It was, it was, aside from getting up at, you know, 3.30 in the morning, it was, it was awesome. And it was, for me, the big thing was like thinking to what I'd thought would happen after the breaking two race in 2017. I actually wrote a big op-ed for the New York times that fall before the Berlin marathon in 2017 saying, I, you know, I really think everything has changed now that Kipchoge has run this sort of artificial aided two zero zero twenty five in the Nike race. I think he's going to run like two Oh one. That was my, it's, it's in print. That's what I thought said I thought would happen. And then of course, Berlin you, were, you were a year early. Yeah, exactly. I was, I, you know, so I've been telling everyone I called it, I predicted it. I was just a year <laughs> off. That's all. Yeah. But it, it was hot in Berlin in 2017 I, or it was rainy rather in Berlin in 2017. It was hot in London in 2018. So Berlin 2018 was his first cr crack in decent conditions since breaking two. And he did, um, I won't say it's what I expected. It's what I thought could be possible in, you know, in an amazing, wonderful day. And, and so, yeah, it was really exciting to see that because I, I, you know, five years ago, how many people on this planet would have said they expected someone to run 201? Uh, however many asterisks you want to put for, for shoes and things like that. It's just, it's crazy to see. It's amazing. It was also amazing just to see what seemed like the relative ease of it for him at the end. He was just flying on by himself. And yeah, yeah, that I was mean, you, the most remarkable part for me. I, you never want to, you know, assume you know what, what someone is feeling like in their head, but it was certainly uh, seeing him cross the finish line and then, you know, seemingly, uh, actually accelerate to run towards, to give his coach a big hug and to leap into the air. It's like, yeah. wow, I, I don't remember. You don't see a lot of people looking that chipper after, after a race, let alone a race that, <laughs> uh, a race like that. So I, I, I you know, we, we can, I guess we'll get to the prediction section, but I, I don't know that it means he's going to run faster in the future, but it was, it certainly, uh, yeah, it, it didn't look like he was, uh, you know, at, at, at the absolute scraping the bottom of the barrel of what, he, what he might be capable of. Yeah. The other thing that struck me after watching it was it just seemed like the difference between him and everybody else now is is seemingly insurmountable, even it, at his quote-unquote age, whatever that actually may be. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because, you know, as as you know, there's been lots of discussion and debate about the shoes he wears, the the four, Nike Vaporfly 4% uh, or, or whatever equivalent he wears. And, you know, is, is he really just a 204 guy who's, who's gotten lucky to be flourishing uh, in, in, right when these shoes have come out? And so I, I, I did a big analysis, uh, I don't know, a month or two ago, looking at the trends in top 100 marathon times over the last decade or so, trying to understand, is, this, is it just like, is everyone way, way, way faster now? Uh, or is it just Kipchoge? And what, you, what really jumps out at you when you look at the times is Kipchoge's time in Berlin last fall is just totally out of step with what the rest of the world is doing. So it's not like everybody got, suddenly got three minutes faster. Um, the shoes are doing something, but if if the shoes were really the secret by, behind Kipchoge, you'd see a whole bunch of other people running, if not 201, then at least 202 or 203. And, right. and we don't see that. So yeah, he's he whatever's happening, he he is not playing on you know w with with the same tools that everyone else is playing. Some somehow he's he's head and shoulders above everybody else. 
it seems like he's a true master of the marathon and it seems like there are others that aren't willing to become a true master. I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's, it's something that happens. Perhaps I speculate that sometimes with the East African runners, because they come from an impoverished place when they get a big victory and then the money that comes with that and the fame and perhaps the, the fortune in their world that then it changes their dynamic in that they get distracted and lose their way. And a lot of them might have early positive, strong results, but then fade. You see it happening where they fade fairly quickly or can't reproduce maybe those initial results that they have in their debut or their second marathon. So I don't know if that's part of it. And Kachogi just seems immune to that sort of thing. He's just the guy who's cleaning the bathrooms anyway, at training camp or whatever it may be. Or if he just has figured out a secret sauce that nobody else has. Yeah, I, you know, it's. I mean, what you say is, is very true. That there's a long-standing pattern of early success, and you know, guys like Sammy Wanjiru, whose story was, of course, very sad. That you know, he he became successful, won the Olympics, and then you know was having a drinking problem, couldn't stay in shape, and eventually you know died in a drunken fall off a balcony. But there's a lot more or less dramatic cases of guys who just you know, they get a hundred thousand bucks. I mean, they're set, they're set for life. And, and, um, and you know, who can blame them? The life of a marathoner is really, really hard. And so it is, um, almost sort of mystifying to see that Kipchoge has seemingly really kept the hunger that he, he's still, uh, really internally driven. And he certainly came from a poor background and, and I'm sure was motivated to change his life, but he's obviously, uh, that's not what it's about for him. He's he's pushing for for something deeper because man, for a guy who who has as much money and he he's not just rich on a Kenyan scale. Like he's he's obviously he's well off no matter where he wants to live, and yet he's spending you know five days a week in this austere training camp. So yeah, he, he and and that that sort of points to the the question of what comes next. Because like it's hard to imagine how he can summon up the hunger to train as hard as he will need to train to do anything better than what he's done already. <laughs> right. And he has people that are theoretically hungry to take that spot. We've, we've got London coming up. Everybody's talking about the Mo Farah versus Kipchoge rematch. Obviously Kipchoge dispatched him fairly handily last year in London. Although I think people were impressed by Farah's result and his ability to hang tough on a hot day. I don't really see a scenario where Farah can challenge Kipchoge. I think they're still in different leagues, but do you think Farah's a step closer? Do you think there's a threat that Kipchoge could get knocked off this time? I, I think Farah looked good in, in Chicago and, and is, you know, learning the, the marathon ropes probably most importantly is, has, has had a few marathon buildups under his belt now, uh, you know, isn't pretending, isn't still, trying to you know do 10,000 meter training or 5,000 meter training um so far I may be getting better but I, honestly I wouldn't necessarily the, the the number of people who are like exceptional exceptional track runners who then are also exceptional exceptional marathon runners uh is is relatively small um I think I, you know maybe someone will challenge me on that but I think I wouldn't necessarily expect Farah to be the one who could push an inform Kipchoge if anyone it would be uh one of the young Kenyan guys, perhaps possibly even some, or Ethiopian, but you know, there's always new young guys coming out who, who are hungry and 
surprise people. So it, it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if Kipchoge lost. Like if the question is, will someone in the field beat Kipchoge? I'd say the odds are maybe fifty fifty. Uh, if, but if you if you ask me to name a specific person who will beat Kipchoge, Kipchoge, I don't think anyone has a particular. I don't think anyone has a good chance. But I think when you add up all the various people who will be there and all the things that could go right or wrong for Kipchoge, um, there, there's a definitely a chance, a good chance he'll lose in the marathon. But uh, but yeah, I don't necessarily think Farah is the guy I would put my money on. But he's only lost once, Alex. <laughs> can, can we can we use that statistical? You know, the past is our stats. That that proves it. <laughs> yeah, right. But you're right. It's like Adola in 2017. Nobody knew who Adola was. Yeah, Adola. And he's not done nothing since, he, right? Like, <laughs> and he's done nothing since. But he challenged Kipchoge on that day. Yeah. We thought maybe there's a chance he might lose, and then of course he prevailed. Yeah. So that's, I think that's you're right. The scenario I think it's more I likely imagine. a debutante. Yeah. One of these, one of these Ethiopians from the Dubai Marathon, or something, who's, who's, uh, you know, not afraid to go out at a blistering fast pace and just hang on for dear life. Yeah, and it may not be a debutante, like I said. It may be someone who's run two hundred four, two hundred five, and there are a lot of those guys out there. Who's, you know, I'm a fan of the sport, but I can't name every two hundred four guy from the last few years. There's, there's a bunch of guys who wouldn't have to make that big a leap to get down into, you know, two hundred three range. Uh, where Kipchoge might be vulnerable. The crazy thing to me, though, in all of it, and, and just something I try to think and apply in my own running and coaching, is the marathon is a hard thing to master. It's also hard to be consistent with the marathon because of the variables. The weather, you know, you have a bad day, something doesn't sit right in the nutrition you take. There's a lot of things that can go wrong that might appear to be out of your control. Kipchoge seems to be immune to those things. He just seems to be able to consistently win and generally run within a fairly tight range of paces without fail. It's unbelievable. Yeah, and, uh, you know, we can bet against him and eventually we'll be right. I mean, that's just the way it works. Um, <laughs> but, he, uh, you know, he's, I, I don't think he's immune to the laws of, uh, laws of the marathon or the laws of probability or the laws of time. Um, but yeah, his streak is pretty much unprecedented. And so maybe part of that is that he's been, a he's, uh, you know, he's been a 201 guy run, winning races in 203, 204. And so he hasn't had to, you know, at the halfway mark, he hasn't been pushed as close to his limits as, as some of the other guys. Um, or, yeah. or maybe he's just, you know, he's obviously just a, he has the mindset and he's he's talented and he's trained hard and he hasn't gotten injury hasn't had injury problems um who knows how long that that streak can last cuz we, we you know nothing lasts forever but uh, yeah it's it, it, I, with every passing marathon i think well he's going to have to have a rough one eventually uh but who knows when that is he's kind of i use the comparison he's like the usain bolt of marathoning basically for whatever reason bolt obviously had a unique skill set genetically and from a stature standpoint in the 100 meters and the 200 meters. Kipchoge has that for the marathon. Yeah, and it's and, maybe not as not as obvious what it is about Kipchoge that, that does it, but there's something about who he is and how he trains and how he prepares that uh, 
that really has him, he has this dialed in where the marathon is no longer this sort of mythical beast where you only succeed one out of every three times. He's, he's going out and doing, you know, it's not like he's never had anything gone wrong. He had that, that year in Berlin where his insoles came out and he ran the whole race with the <laughs> right. insoles flapping like wings and he still ran 204 still. flat. So, um, it, you know, yeah. so we know he's been in much better shape than that for, for a number of years now. And, and so the, the fact is, and, and he's had challenges like with, for Medola. So just like Bolt, uh, you know, Bolt kept winning and winning and winning, but sometimes the, the wins were very, very narrow. So it's, it's, there's that something that sort of hard to measure, uh, sort of winner factor where he, he manages to pull it out even when it's, it's tight. I still want to see him race Boston or New York without pacers on a more challenging course and see what that would do for him. I'm sure he would still show his dominance in a different way, but that's to me more interesting than seeing him go run faster than, than a 201. Interesting. Yeah. I, I, I'm not sure. I, I, uh, I, I would be on your, your side on that one, but <laughs> like if, for him to You're go Canadian. faster than a 201, like I, I, I would sacrifice, <laughs> you know, a thousand Boston's and, and 10,000 New York's for, for, okay. for him to shave off two, se- two seconds off his world record. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. All right. Well, well, we'll agree to disagree there. Now I want to talk, use that as a segue to talk about the 4% shoes you recently did an article on what makes them better, what makes them faster, because there was a study recently that kind of decomposed the effects of the 4% and broke that down into what was actually causing it, which was really, really interesting. And I know there's not fully definitive conclusions, but I was sitting there, I ran California International Marathon in December, looking around at those around me at the start line that were all going to be running somewhere you know, between 240 and 250 man, probably 80% had, had those shoes on. It was, so it was a sea of that kind of pinkish orange that, that the 4% is known for. And I was sitting there wearing my Adidas Adios Boost, the competitive and, as the studies say, less effective energy return shoe than those competitors around me. But this study said it wasn't the carbon fiber plate everybody thought it was. It was actually, it's actually the foam. So talk about that because that to me is a conclusion I didn't expect. Yeah, and 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 like you said, we all of this stuff is still speculative and taking little bits of data and and trying to figure out what it is that makes these shoes special. But um, it's it's been it's been clear all along that the foam that Nike has, uh, this Zoomax foam, is is extremely special. Uh, it's very very resilient and very very light. Uh, and the light weight is important because it means you can you can stack a big wedge of this foam there without paying the usual penalty. That usually usually if you have a nice thick shoe for a marathon, it's heavy, and so you're going to run slower because you're pu- pulling more weight around. So the combination of lightness and the resilience, when you squeeze it down, it it gives you back something like ninety percent of the energy that you've put in to squeeze it down, compared to I can't remember you know seventy five or eighty percent for the boost foam. And far less than that for most for most foams. So the foam was always going to be special. The question was what what is the role of the carbon fiber plate? Uh, and most people have been thinking about the carbon fiber plate as a spring, right? Like you're you're running on spring loaded shoes, and that was really, to be honest, a, a series of of sort of misunderstandings and poor reporting. So there was a Nike patent for a spring loaded shoe that came out around the same time as the Vaporfly, and people assumed that it was the patent for the Vaporfly. Uh, and they weren't, it was, they were wrong. It was a totally different shoe that it was a, a curved carbon fiber plate that curved in a completely different direction to make a spring. 
And so anyway, all, all of which is prefaced to say that the results weren't of this new study from the University of Colorado weren't totally surprising, but they went against the narrative that had caught, got hold about what made the shoe special. And they used a bunch of, they did a bunch of material testing, and then they did a bunch of biomechanical tests, uh, really, really careful uh, 3D motion analysis, look, putting markers all over the shoe and all over runners' legs to see what the forces were, like when you're running on the shoe, how much does the shoe bend in what direction, and then we can figure out where is the energy being stored and returned. And their basic conclusion was, yeah, the carbon fiber plate bends and springs back a tiny bit, but the the foam compresses and springs back and gives you about 50 times more energy than the plate. So the real source of any energy return, just like in the boost, is the foam. Now the question is, okay, so what's the carbon fiber plate all about? Is it just a sales gimmick or what? And what the Colorado researchers figured when I asked them, like I said, well, could you just have a shoe full of foam then? And they said, well, it would be awfully hard to corner on you know, a big 35 millimeter stack foam, soft foam shoe without that stiffening element in it. It gives it some stability. So it may be as simple as that. There may also be a little bit of energy savings from things like preventing your your toe joint from bending because mostly when you when you're running you have you know various joints bending like your your ankle for instance bends and that stretches your your Achilles tendon which functions like an elastic and when you push off it sort of snaps back and you get some of that energy back but when your toe bends it only unbends when you're in the air so you don't get any you're not pushing off from your toe as your toe unbends so so toe bending energy is is generally wasted and the carbon fiber plate prevents that toe from bending. So you might get a little bit of energy savings there. Um, so I, I realize I'm, I'm sort of saying a lot of different things and, and going in 50 different directions at once because it is complicated and there's a lot of stuff going on and it's hard to figure out exactly what's what. But, but in terms of what makes the shoe special, the, these results tend to support the, the narrative that it's really the foam and the, the idea of having a thick wedge of foam uh, more than the carbon fiber plate that matters. Yeah, it's fascinating because I know that there's a lot of copycat shoes coming. I believe Brooks has one in the works. Hoka has one that was launched, I believe, earlier this year for the Houston half where Jim Walmsley was wearing it, with a racer with a carbon fiber plate. And so it seems like the copycat versions are focusing on the plate versus the foam, which means that if you're getting, if you're thinking you can take you know, your favorite brand and pick up their copycat version and still get the same effect as the Nike 4%, you're, you might be wrong. Yeah. I mean, it, we'll see, I guess, but, and, and ho- I assume that these companies have done their own testing to, to, and presumably they're, they've made sure that their shoe does something. Maybe the carbon fiber plate allows each of the companies to put in a thicker layer of foam and to have this sort of similar geometry. Uh, and maybe they don't get all of the same resilience and all of the same, uh, you know, weight benefits as as the zoom x foam does but if they if they're using new there's there's you know the p-bax foams or whatever there's these various fancy new phones coming coming on foams coming online that it's it's more of a shift in the general geometry of the shoe uh, away from ultra light thin sort of paper sold flats and to to a thicker more cushioned shoe maybe that's going to be beneficial for uh even even if the foam isn't quite as quite it doesn't have quite the same characteristics as the nike foam um, cause I mean, there's, there's other considerations too, that are harder to quantify in these tests. Like one of the sort of the anecdotal reports are that people don't, their legs don't feel as beat up towards the end of a marathon. So, uh, you know, if you're someone 
like me who, who ends up with kind of muscle damage and, and soreness uh, after when, when you're running for a long period of time, that could be as, as big a factor as any change in efficiency. If the if running instead of in a, a racing flat, if you're running in a nice thick cushioned shoe that's not too heavy, uh, maybe that's what's going to help marathon times most is is uh, is having that extra cushioning without paying the weight penalty. And maybe the carbon fiber plate allows you to do that without having a big sort of marshmallow of a shoe. Yeah. One thing that struck me in reading your article and some of the hypotheses going in about what might happen in the study. It also struck me that I think Nike sort of stumbled upon this almost by accident (laughs) in a sense that they don't really know why their shoe worked, but they found a shoe that worked and it seemed to be constructed in a way that works, even though the effects they were maybe trying to create with the plate and the way it was structured and the foam and how thick it was and all those things weren't necessarily intended outcomes but ultimately it all came together in this sort of perfect storm that does give this benefit, which seems to be a pretty definitive benefit, but it was almost in spite of what Nike thought would happen instead of, of because of what they thought would happen. Yeah. I mean, ultimately we don't know what Nike knows. Uh, they're very secretive. Um, so they had their external testing done by uh, a group, Roger Cram's group at the university of Colorado. Roger Cram is a paid consultant for Nike, but he's a professor at the university of Colorado. So he does this sort of external testing. Um, but he doesn't have act and he collaborated with some of the Nike scientists, but he doesn't have access to the testing that they did internally. So, you know, when I spoke to him, it's like, well, okay, wouldn't it be sort of obvious? Can't you, one, surely they could just give you a shoe that has the same geometry, but without the carbon fiber plate. And then a shoe that has the carbon fiber plate, but with a different kind of foam that's less resilient and heavier. And then you'd know how much is the foam and how much is the plate. And he was basically like, yeah, of course, but they won't give me those shoes. Like they, 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 they don't, <laughs> yeah. they don't make those. Shoes. So he wasn't able to test the components independently. I, I would be shocked if Nike hasn't run that test. You know, let's see what this shoe right. with this foam, but without a carbon fiber plate. Let's see what it what it does. I would be shocked if they haven't done that test. But they have they have managed to keep if if they have they've managed to keep the results totally. Um, you know, uh, under the radar. So no, that, that hasn't leaked out. So I don't know how much they know. And I also, I, I'm totally fascinated. Like one of the things in, with the whole breaking two project, I was like, how do you decide to spend, you know, what I estimate were, what might've been tens of millions of dollars on this huge publicity stunt, unless you know, you have a shoe that is absolute dynamite. So I was like, so I was trying to establish the timeline that, so, so you discovered this shoe and then you decided to do this breaking two thing. And they, insist that it was the other way around, that they decided to design a crazy shoe and have this crazy race. Um, and then they worked on the shoe and tried a billion different iterations and stumbled on the, uh, the, the, the one they ended up with. And I'm like, seriously, seriously, you decided to do breaking two before <laughs> you knew you, you, you just happened to stumble on right. what seems to be like the most significant advance in shoe technology since like the invention of leather. And so, so I mean, because you can't plan for that. You can't plan for a breakthrough like that. So maybe they were just, they started the breaking two right. project and they were just thinking it was going to be like, Hey, everyone come to Eugene and we're going to host the Eugene marathon. And some guy's going to try and run sub two. And they just made it into a bigger thing once they stumbled on the shoe. But all of that is very murky to me exactly when they figured out they yeah. had a real, uh, you know, something really special in the shoe. 
especially when you i mean i worked at nike for a summer internship and talking to some of the run guys there when they talk to you about development timelines for shoes they're so long i mean they're really really long not only for the technology but even once they figure out what technology they want to use to get it actually ready for production just takes a long time so yeah you would think they would have known something before they before they decided that kipchoge was going to do the thing or, or maybe they thought that their secret weapon was just the drafting or the secret nutrition yeah that you know that, that's that's a very, he was i thought he was that, eating. that's a very good point because the i mean i think when you talk to andy jones who's the the the, phys, the british physiologist who was a, a key part of it he was giving talks a couple you know back in 2015 i heard him give a talk saying basically that he thought if you wanted to run a sub two-hour marathon and you just have a guy run behind a truck right now and and getting the aerodynamics right would be enough to do it and so they may have thought that the other ingredients would be significant, but but even then, then it's like Nike's not going to sell, you know, dra- drafting, you know, <laughs> the, truck. the truck. So it's like, <laughs> you know, it becomes a much. It, it certainly is a much more logical brand play once they have this pair of shoes to to, to pedal, which which you know, and, and we all, I think yeah. everyone would agree. Whatever you think of breaking two, it's it's worked out well for them from a both from an overall brand strength perspective <laughs> yeah. and from a selling these particular shoes perspective. Well, it's made them relevant in the running shoe category again because for a long time they just frankly weren't because they didn't have very good shoes and now people are people can't get enough. So, it's it's interesting, but it does it does make everyone I think it does force everyone who wants to compete at a high level even if that's within their own relative set of performances if they want to compete at a high level, they've got to at least consider the shoes if they can afford it. Because it seems to give a definitive advantage. Yeah, and that's and 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 that of course opens up a whole set of questions about whether that's how you want things to how, how things should be at the at, at the upper levels of sport. But uh, yeah, it's tricky. It forces you. I mean, for for those of us who are not, uh, you know, competing for Olympic medals or whatever, it 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 forces, and it's been certainly for me. It's it forces some reflection on like, well, what. What is fair? What is acceptable? What what am I looking for of when I try to get a minute faster or thirty seconds faster, whatever the case may be? What what's a satisfying way of getting faster and what isn't? And I and I and I'm not posing that as a as a as a sort of purely empty question where I think I know the answer because I don't. I think it's a it's a difficult question. Yeah, it's a good point. It's like if I could run two minutes faster in the shoes, is that satisfying? <laughs> Versus knowing that I had to work harder or train smarter or rest better i don't know i mean for me to this point i don't want to spend over 200 dollars on a pair of shoes so you know i don't care if it's going to make me two two minutes faster i'd rather just work harder that's my perspective yeah i mean well i mean it's like if 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 some marathon promises to install industrial fans along the last 10 miles so that you get blown to be a minute faster (laughs) i mean where where's where is that on the spectrum like there's there's lots of ways of getting faster uh, and and i i don't think it's as clear i think people on both sides both people who think it's clear that the vapor flies are cheating and people on the other side who are like what's there's absolutely zero issue here there's nothing we to even talk about i don't i don't i don't i'm not in tune with either of those views i think there's certainly a a reason to reflect on on uh, what sorts of performance enhancements are consistent with with uh you know what we're what we're all trying to get out of from sport 
Yeah, I was recently talking with the marathon investigation guy, Derek Murphy, and asking about, we were talking about a, a specific case related to a rogue athlete, but one of the things that came up in the discussion was the idea of downhill marathons and whether or not they should be eligible for Boston qualification if you're dropping 5,000 feet <laughs> in in elevation in a marathon. And I tend to have a personal belief that that's not something I would go do because, you know, there's a clear advantage of being able to run downhill like that. And obviously you have to train specifically for it. Not everybody can do it well because of that eccentric loading. But for me, I would have an asterisk on that kind of result. And so is that different than the 4%? Or, you know, so those types of questions come up. And then, and then you know, the, the argument kind of went to, well, what about weather? What about choosing a marathon that's good, known for its good weather? Is that somehow choosing an advantage that's, that's unfair and and I guess there is a slippery slope there at some point but you know for me a downhill marathon still feels a little bit like you kind of cheated it yeah and, and it, uh, this is a conversation we could we could spend <laughs> six hours on but you know there, so the, the, at the, well I was going to say there are rules the IWF has rules on what's permitted for record purposes um, of course, the Association of Road Racing Statisticians has different rules on what's, what should be permitted and whether it's the start and finish have to be within 30% of the total distance of the race or 50% of the total distance of the race. And you can have no more than a certain, I can't remember whether it is a foot per mile or a meter per kilometer or something like that in descent. So then to me, it's like, okay, let's agree on the rules. And then uh, within those rules, if you want to optimize the course, you know, more power to you. But the, but it's not just sort of like well if you're willing to run down Mount Everest then then you you can run down Mount Everest yeah. so and and similarly with the shoes it's like I don't think there's a sort of like you know on the seventh day God decided that shoes should only have you know be have a, a stack height of of thirty millimeters and and should have no you know elements that are not you know in in the wrong part of the periodic table um, I think we 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 decide what shoes are but we have to decide. We, you know, we, we, we should be clear on the rules and we should make the rules, uh, proactively so that we're, we're deciding that these shoes are allowed, not just, this just sort of slipping in without any thought. Cause I think if you, I, I kind of think that if 10 years ago we'd sat down to decide, Hey, let's, let's, let's be farsighted and, and really specify what sorts of footwear should be allowed in road races, uh, so that we don't have, get into any sort of technological arms races the rules we might have come up with probably would have specified no, you know, metallic or, 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 you know, spring-like components in the midsole or something like that. But instead we're being forced to, to try and think about this after the shoe is already out there and has already set a world record, uh, which, which makes it a lot more complicated. So I, yeah, I, I, but, but in terms of the whole downtail thing, yeah, I think, I think it's sort of like the, performance enhancing drugs too. It's not like there's a natural, this is right. And this is wrong bright line that everyone will agree on, agree on. It's, it's always gray area. So we just have to come to an agreement over what's acceptable, whether that's how, how much of a downhill slope still counts as a record quality marathon or a qualifying marathon and how much doesn't, or whether it's what, you know, what can go into issue. So a related point to footwear is running form and you've had a decent number of articles recently touching on various aspects of running form that I wanted to drill in on because I think that'll be helpful for our listeners. The first 
I think is kind of funny where you talked about the hobby jobber hobby jogger machine essentially that some researchers in Canada had figured out a way to basically identify the difference or have a machine identify the difference in a more elite athlete or competitive runner versus a more recreational runner simply by looking at variables in running form. First question though, before we get into the details of the study, did you get flack for using that term, hobby jogger machine, you know, index machine or whatever you had there? I, I, I was surprised. I, I didn't get any directly back. I, I thought I would. I mean, I hoped that I fr- phrased it in such a way that it was clear that I was uh, kind of joking about it. Especially, I, I started off the article by pointing out that this was one of those uh, things that you get, gets talked about on the Let's Run message boards. So that it's like, and it's always looking for a way of of making fun of hobby joggers. So. Um, yeah, the short answer is no, no, no one called me out on it. Uh, maybe, but maybe there are, there's a, a bunch of people who are boiling mad and angry and just didn't bother to, to waste their time chewing me out. Well, I, I want to use but, this but, as an opportunity for them to yell loudly if, if they're so, if they're so inclined. I, I want to use this as an opportunity to say that <laughs> it was tongue in cheek and, you know, yes. uh, I would c- classify myself as a, a hobby jogger if I used that term, which I don't, I, I only use it in, in uh, tongue in cheek. So we learn you can't just look at it, but the machine, you can't just look at someone and know the difference. And, and also that these sort of common characteristics you think about cadence, stride length, aren't the differentiators. The machine found some other things seems like the overall theme from the article was that stride consistency matter most. So we'll, where did, what did we learn there about that part of it? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it's possible to, to sort of construct reasons that, oh, you know, consistency is important because X, Y, and Z. I mean, I think what it reflects is that if you've been doing something for a long time, you're really dialed into what's the right stride length for you, what's the right uh, uh, you know, joint angles and all that. So you're running with a, instead of being sort of all over the map, like someone who's just started running might be. But the problem is you can't, you can't just instruct someone to say, Hey, you should try and run more consistently. That's, that's not really a useful piece of advice. And, and this is where we get to, I think with a lot of the running form discussions that even if you can detect what quote unquote good running form is, it's often not something that's easy to just sort of adopt. Um, so this this particular, this sort of what I called the hobby jogger detection machine, this sort of way of looking at running stride, having the computer analyze it and say, um, you know, oh, this person is running like an experienced person and this person isn't. That could be useful diagnostically. Uh, that could be, uh, you know, useful to, uh, if someone's having a lot of injury problems, uh, it's not your... your if, if you are able to then analyze their stride and it says, well, you've got a lot of variability in your stride, then that's going to, that's telling you something. It's, it, and it may, uh, it may tell you about, uh, some, you know, muscle, uh, deficits or, you know, whatever it's flexibility deficits or, um, the, you know, something about the way you run is not optimized. So, or if you're coming back from an injury, it, for instance, you may start with more variability, and as you as you get more healthy, you know, get back to uh, uh, a less variable and more consistent stride. But I think you know, I thought this was an interesting study. But I think actually the most important takeaway is that it's not, it doesn't give you three key things you can do to make your stride better or anything like that. It just it's a reflection. It's a way of diagnosing: Are you running? Perhaps are you running well? Are you are you is your stride getting better compared to what it was a year ago? 
one beef I have with your article here, Alex, which I wanted to tease out in discussion, is that you conflate the terms competitive and recreational with experienced and inexperienced at various times. And it seemed like the study was trying to differentiate the stride differences or the biomechanical differences between quote unquote fast runners and quote unquote slower runners. But then you also wove in this idea of experience versus inexperience. And I think the two could be correlated, but not necessarily related. Yeah, no, that's a great point. So, I, I mean, I, I, so did I miss something there or was there also an experience inexperience clear takeaway too? No, the, you, you, you're right that it, uh, so they, the, the way they, the way they distinguished between the two groups was based on their their World Masters Association age grading performances. So they uh, they were yeah they were looking at competitive versus uh, quote unquote recreational just based on how fast they were. But based on the training characteristics reported, they used it as a proxy, also an imperfect proxy for uh, amount of running for experience. Uh, you know, okay. years of experience and, and typical mileage. And, and we definitely know that that's not always, that, that, that those two things don't off, don't always go hand in hand. And I, I was a little cavalier in, in using them interchangeably. Um, I think for the most part, when we talk about things like stride consistency, that's going to be a reflection more of experience, which is, I guess, why I pivoted to that in the article than it is of you know, who has a naturally higher VO2 max or whatever. I think the, right. so a lot, some of the speed things that vary independent. Uh, so if you, if you take, if you take two people who, one of whom just happens to have a higher VO2 max than the other, or is more tr- trainable and have them do identical training programs for five years or whatever, I think they're more likely to have quite similar biomechanical characteristics, at least according to this sort of, this form of stride analysis. Um, because I, I think these that these things that this that this study was looking for these sorts of subtle differences are more likely to be a function of experience than of uh, you know natural talent uh, if if you want to call it that. Yeah, one of the things I talk to people about as a as a coach, without any study backing me up, but just something I think I've seen over the years is that one way to improve your form, quite frankly and sometimes depressingly for some people, is just to simply run more. Because running more, I think, does help your body over time through that experience and consistency find its more efficient mode of moving. Oh, I, I think that's that's a hundred percent correct, and in fact, I would say that's perhaps the only evidence-based way of significantly improving your running efficiency uh, is running more. Like if you. If, if you if you do studies where it's like okay we're gonna teach this person to hold their arms in the right place we're gonna you know uh, teach them how to land on their feet yada 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 almost all those studies either make no difference to efficiency or make efficiency worse um, the the one intervention that reliably uh, re- leads to improvements in running efficiency is just running uh, more, you know more time so you can do cross-sectional studies where you look at bunch of people who've been running for 15 years, 10 years, five years or whatever. And the, the longer the people have been running, the more efficient they tend to be. And you can also do longitudinal studies where you take a bunch of people, measure their efficiency, have them run for, uh, you know, uh, months or whatever. And they bring them back, measure their efficiency again, and they'll, they'll be better. 
and the biggest changes come at the beginning. Like when you start running, you're extremely inefficiency, extremely inefficient. And over, you know, weeks or months, you pretty quickly start to dial in and get better and better. But that those improvements continue over, over the course of years. So I, I think there's yeah. lots of science behind what you're saying. And it's probably the best single best piece of advice you can give to people is that get out there and, and put in some mileage and, and your body will find its, its best form. There's no magic formula. You had a related article that said you can't think your way to better running form and that in fact, people trying to think about better form actually end up being less efficient because theoretically they're trying to maybe get to a to a form that isn't actually better for them, even though in their head they think they're conjuring some better form. Well, let, let me let me. So I think that's also interesting too. Let, let me let me make a subtle sort of alteration to that. Even if what they're the, the form the new form they're trying to adopt is objectively better, um, having thinking about it and trying to do it consciously may still result in worse efficiency. So because. The, and the, the analogy here is like, um, you know, think about tying your shoes, uh, which I, I, I'm confident that you're fairly, fairly good at that. Um, but, but if, <laughs> if you try and like talk someone through, maybe you've taught your kids to tie shoes recently, but for someone who hasn't thought about it in a long time, if you think about how, okay, how do you tie your shoes? What, what, what happens where, where, when does the rabbit go around the tree? Where's the hole? Like if you start doing it step by step, it actually becomes quite a complicated process. Uh, and it's and it, you you will get less good if you try and think really explicitly about each step of what you're doing when you tie your shoes. There are some there are a lot of motor sequences of motor actions that happen much more smoothly if you just leave it to your subconscious. Where you've learned it, you've consciously learned it, and you've learned it so well that it's now something you don't have to think about, and you're better off not thinking about. It. And there's a lot of research into this sort of motor learning and, and evidence that when you're forced to think carefully about the sequence of events you get worse and this is this underlies a lot of the literature on choking uh you know if you're a golfer trying to sink that winning putt one of the one of the things that happens when the pressure's really on you know when this is the putt to win a million bucks is you no longer just step to step up and just hit the putt like you have a million times you start thinking about it and you start trying to consciously control okay remember don't pull it you know don't swing too hard don't and and by consciously controlling it, you make it worse. You're taking it out of the well-practiced subconscious. And the same is true to some extent with running. Uh, you start trying to think about uh, explicitly about where your legs should go and what your arms should do, and you get less smooth. And it's not it's not 100% clear exactly how or why this happens. One of the theories is that when you're trying to do it consciously, this you're not as accurate in sending signals to to the muscles that need to do things. So you end up sending, sending some signals to the to the opposing muscles. So you're co-contracting muscles that are trying to move, you know, up and down or whatever at the same time and spending extra energy that you shouldn't be spending. But for whatever reason, it's a pretty robust finding that if you tell people, okay, focus on the motion of your legs, instantly their oxygen consumption will, will they'll, they'll be consuming a little bit more energy at the same pace compared to if you just tell them to, to look at the scenery. So pulling in another form article that you you recently published on what we can learn from elite running form, there was a massive biomechanical analysis done at, I believe it was the World Championships on elite athletes and what we can learn from their running form. In that article, you talked about, to me, some comforting ideas like 
47% of elite runners in certain races are heel strikers, which, you know, makes a heel striker like me feel good. In that one, you also talked about how those that excelled or that at the elite level tended to show more form consistency as fatigue built as well, which also underscores this idea that really stride consistency, not only from you know, for an individual comparing to other individuals, but also for a, for a single person throughout, uh, you know, a single endeavor of their ability to maintain that consistency longer and longer at certain paces is only going to benefit them as well. So, yeah, and, you and know, it's th- another lesson to pull in from the elite world. And, and I think, you know, one of the interesting things in, in, in there is, is the idea that, so this was a study that was done at the world championships with sort of, you know, a billion high tech high-speed cameras set up in all sorts of different places and they were doing all sorts of sophisticated analysis but we're we're in an age now where we're we're starting to be able to collect a lot more data a lot more you know personal tech uh, accelerometers whatever you want measuring things about your stride and we're not really sure what to to do with a lot of the data there's there's a lot of companies selling uh, various uh, you know running devices and we're still trying to figure out. So, is it useful to know your left-right balance? Uh, you know, after that, it was forty-nine point five percent rather than fifty percent. I, I don't know, but this is a case where the, the, this analysis they did of stride consistency over the course of a race. So, what changes when you're nine k into a ten k race compared to when you're one k? Um, and and you know, some of the the best runners were very consistent, but not all of them. Some of them were were were, were changing, and I think it was. Uh, Steve Magnus, uh, the the coach at the University of Houston, who who wrote some of the analysis of this study, and one of the points he made is that you can you can look at the things that do change, and they can tell you something about where your weakest link is. So if you can if you can go back over your data and say, man, when I'm tired, my cadence really starts to drop, or when I'm tired, you know, my ground contact time, or whatever, you know, my up and down motion, whatever the case may be. You can see what it is that changes, and then you can think about well, what what could I do to strengthen that or to address that asymmetry that's starting to show up, or or whatever the case may be. Um, so, so I think rather than saying, rather than looking at at data from wearables and saying, well, the ideal is 100, 180 steps a minute or whatever, uh, therefore I should try to be like that. I think that's nonsense. But looking at here's how I run when I'm feeling good. And wow, here's what changed when I was getting tired. That tells you something about uh, maybe what you need to address in training. Yeah, along with running more. <laughs> that particular study also made me feel better because I'm like, because it, you mentioned in there that the evidence is that some of the best runners at their events, including including Almazayana, 10K champion, she has some dramatic asymmetries in her stride which as somebody who feels like I don't have a perfect stride and certainly not a symmetrical stride, it makes me feel better that it's okay to have some unique characteristics in your stride. Even the best runners in the world might exhibit those and can still run fast. Yeah. I think for her, it was something like a 20 centimeter difference between the length of her right and left uh, strides by the end of the race. 20 centimeters, I guess is something like eight inches. Uh, eight to ten, yeah, about eight inches. Which is big. Yeah, that's big yeah. That's, you sort of you, you sort of imagine <laughs> her hopping along like she's on a poker stick or something, uh, but but she looks pretty good when she's you know half a lap in front of the rest of the 
the field. So, I, I, you know, I don't think this is an argument that you should cultivate a stride asymmetry, but that it's it's sort of it sort of makes me think of the analogy to one of the big debates in modern medicine, which is that if you have a billion you know high tech screening tools and you have everyone go to the doctor every year and and you know do the mammogram and the prostate test and the colonoscopy, it's like and you're going to find a lot of things wrong with almost everybody. And the question is, which of those things have any significance? And which of those things, if you start trying to treat every sort of apparent abnormality, you you, you start being very quickly start being counterproductive. And similarly, you can you know you talk about running form. It's like, oh, this person has uh, you know a slightly asymmetric stride, or their their arm isn't where that we think it should be. Um, it's possible that that's holding them back. It's also possible that it's it's not at all holding them back and by messing with it you're just wasting their time and possibly messing with their stride and there is you know there is around that same time there was there was this new study that came out about Usain Bolt uh showing that he had a really asymmetric stride and and I think the quote from the from the researcher from Peter Wayand the SMU researcher was you know correcting his asymmetry would might might you know would not necessarily speed him up and might even slow him down and so I think that's an important thing to remember for all of us that um you know, as we get more data, it's a lot easier to find way the ways in which we are not, you know, quote unquote perfect. And uh, you, you know, you don't you don't necessarily want to chase every one of those rabbits down the hole. Uh, sometimes those things are, are are just fine to be left alone. You're beautiful, just the way you are. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> That's exactly what my message is. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of sort of keeping it simple, one of your recent articles is sort of on the simplicity of what data matters in you know, data tracking matters. And this was related to a study in cyclists about basically, you know, how they were feeling after a run and, and what really mattered. And, and the study looked at a lot of really scientific data on, you know, heart rate and, watts and all those things that you could measure as a cyclist which are even more robust than that for runners and but also just the simple sort of effort indications of how you felt on a given day and the ultimate outcome seemed to be that simple from a data tracking standpoint in our world of technology and and uh, as we like to call them geekometers on our wrists that sometimes just, just actually tracking how you feel might actually be as powerful. Yeah, and and I'll admit there's a there's a certain attraction for me as a, as a as a journalist and as a luddite to uh, to be able to say, oh yeah, just just tune into your feelings and that that's all you need, because um, it's just, <laughs> it turns out to be just as good as all the technology. I think ultimately, I think where I end up in that article and where I, where I think I, I the advice that I'll give here is that really the most powerful combination is paying attention to how you feel. So recording things like your, you know, at the end of each run, just writing down on a scale of one to 10, how did, how hard was that effort? Um, so having that data, but also having some data, you know, some objective data, whether it's pace or, uh, you know, heart rate or power, if you're a cyclist or whatever the case may be, and then comparing how, seeing how the, you know, the two should move roughly in sync. Like if you, if you're, the, the, you know, the faster you're running, the, 
the harder it should feel and the, the longer they're running, the harder it should feel. And when you see deviations from that, when, you know, your effort is get, is going, you, you know, you're, you're reporting that this, this week's run was harder than last week's run, uh, but you ran slower then, you know, you, you, that should give you pause and you should check, well, was it a lot hotter this week or something? Was there some external factor? Am I more tired because I had a big workout yesterday? Or is, is this a sign that something's going off the rails? Am I, am I getting sick? Do I have other life stress that's interfering? Um, so that, that to me is a, is the, you know, the best early warning system for whether you're, you're handling your training load appropriately more so than any, any other, any, any one technological measure like your, your heart rate variability or, or, you know, what, whatever Garmin or Polar wants to tell you about your, your recovery status, uh, you, you need to be incorporating how you feel, or at least there's a ton of information that goes into, that's baked into that simple measure of how you feel that, uh, that is probably more sensitive, and this—that's what this study, which comes from a, a big, per, you know, database of professional cycling, kept by by, by Team Sunweb, the the cycling team. Um, that's it's probably more sensitive, or at least as sensitive as, as any other s- collection of of data that you can that you can collect. Yeah, I think it's important to journal it, and I th- also think it's important to, as you say, correlate with what data you do have, particularly after workouts. Because to me, learning to operate by effort, not only in workouts, but afterwards with how you might be balancing your recovery or how you might be then turning around to do another workout again, depending on how you feel, all of that learning is hard. And as a human, I think we're becoming less and less in touch. As humans, we're becoming less and less in touch with how we feel or how certain things make us feel, whether it be workouts or maybe just how, what we're eating. And as a result, even though we were more informed in some ways, we're less informed because we're not listening to just this, the, the single best measuring device that we have, which is our own bodies. Yeah. And I think, you know, so I think in a general holistic sense, being aware of how we feel is really important. And just also in a very narrow sense, uh, when you're racing, ultimately only you can decide whether you're going at a speed that you can sustain to the finish or whether you're going at a slower speed than you can sustain to the finish. You have to be, you have to understand what the feeling is of being at a pace halfway through an effort and what, what sustainable feels like. And, and that takes practice. You can't, you, you, what, what it takes is a, a lot of runs where you're, you know, pushing yourself and some, some runs where you push yourself too hard and you blow up before the end of the workout Others where you finish strong and realize ah, I should have been willing to push a little harder earlier, and you have to you have to be listening to, to what it feels like and, and be tuned into that. So I think part of it is you know, even beyond just beyond the sort of training journal uh, and, and analysis perspective, you just have to have the mindset that it's important to be tuned into how you're feeling. So keeping along the theme of keep it simple, we got in a grand debate on our last episode together with Christy Eshwanden talking about her book, Good to Go, episode 110 on the on hydration and the perspective that she shares in her book that has been shared by others like Tim Noakes that if you drink to thirst and endurance an event, you're going to be just okay. You were playing a little bit of devil's advocate there. You also subsequently came out with another article on hydration and that 
You know, they basically said drinking with thirst, drinking to thirst is okay. I wanted to add a personal anecdote to the discussion that we can then talk about. This past weekend, I ran a marathon, 26.2 miles with a friend of mine. I was pacing him to what would was uh, ultimately a PR for him. And because it wasn't an all-out effort for me, I thought, you know what? This will be an opportunity to, to test out this theory of drinking to thirst and not be so rigorous about my hydration. Because normally in a marathon, I'll I'll take water starting at the second water st- or, or Gatorade or water or noon or whatever they may have, starting at the second water stop and hit try to hit every water stop until the end, basically to quote-unquote stay ahead of my hydration. That's my typical approach if I'm racing. In this case, I thought, I've got a little bit more flexibility. I'm not going all out for me. So I can play with it a little bit and drink to thirst. So that's that's what I did. Every time I passed a water station and I felt like I needed to get a drink, I would grab something. Sometimes I wouldn't. Sometimes I would grab water and throw it on top of my head because it got a little bit of warm it got a little bit warm and sunny later in the day. But as I progressed through the through the marathon, I found that I was getting thirsty more frequently in that I went from sort of sporadically hitting water stops early to grabbing something at every stop later, probably starting about the mile 18 or 19 mile point. By the time, by the time I got to 24, I was so, I was so thirsty that I couldn't satiate my thirst in the time that I was flying past the water stations and certainly not with the amount of liquid that was retained in the cup after half of it splashed out upon me grabbing it. And it was fine at that point. I only had two miles to the finish. I don't think it inhibited my performance. But when I got to the finish, I promptly pounded a full bottle of water because I felt like I needed it. So I guess for me, it raised sort of the, some of the practical things that you mentioned in your most recent article about hydration, which is that, yes, drinking to theory drinking a thirst works in theory, but you also have to factor in the practical elements of, well, if I'm flying by a water stop, I can't always drink fully to thirst in what I can grab in those split seconds. So let's talk about that. Yeah. And I think your, your story illustrates a a lot of the sort of dilemmas and, and, and debates that, that come up here. I mean, so one argument would be that to say, yeah, you were pretty thirsty by mile 25 and and you drank a lot of water when you finished. That's how it's supposed to work, right? Like that's <laughs> right. everything went according to plan and you said stuff, you don't think it necessarily inhibited you and and you know, if it did, it was sort of microscopic level and and maybe what to, to the extent that it inhibited you, it's more than made up for by the fact that you were a little more relaxed at some other water stops, you didn't stop and drink, which would have slowed you down. You were able to dump some water on your head, which cooled you down. And so not stressing about having to chug every time you went through a water stop might have had some sort of positive effect that might have balanced out any any hypothetical negative effect um but conversely i think you know your experience is 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 exactly why i I don't think many elite marathoners whether or not they believe the theory of drinking to thirst i don't think many of them head out there just thinking well we'll see what happens you know maybe we'll stop in and get a drink if i get thirsty or whatever they have a pretty pretty preset plan now, part of that is that for marathoners, you know, maybe the more important thing about drinking is getting enough carbohydrates in. And so people, they don't even care whether they're thirsty. They're drinking when they're not thirsty because they want to make sure they're getting enough carbohydrates in. 
Um, but the other thing is, like you said, yeah, 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 there may be water stops every or drink stops every 5k. If you, if your plan is I'm going to drink whenever I get thirsty, uh, you know, there's no law of nature that says you only get thirsty every five kilometers. And so if you get thirsty at, at 12.5 kilometers, you can't drink, you don't have anything to drink. And so right there, you're, you've, you've already, uh, sort of failed to, to adhere to what you said you were going to do, which is to drink when you were thirsty and that's going to, you know, keep reoccurring. And then, like you said, you're going to, you're going to zoom on by trying to maintain your race pace. You're going to throw, you know, grab a cup, spill three quarters of it and choke on the other quarter of it. I mean, that's, that's not necessarily going to quench your thirst. And you're, and you're also going to be your, your internal processing is going to be focused on your pace, your legs, all sorts of other things. So you may not be tuned into your thirst as much as you would be if you were in a laboratory on a treadmill with a drink in front of you and a scientist measuring how much you drank. Uh, you know, so I, I think there is a difference between the 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 theory, which I agree with, and the the practical implementation in the real world. That that, and and so some people might say, well, you're still drinking to thirst; you just have to plan for it. Well, there, it becomes a sort of angels dancing on a head of a pin. Whether you're in in a marathon, whether it's even possible to just <laughs> quote unquote drink to thirst. And in the study you referenced in your article that came out, I believe, after we had our discussion, there is some science now that says basically drinking to thirst is as good as drinking to plan. But again, that's in the practical confines of a scientific study. Yeah. The, the, so they, there was a meta-analysis that was done of, of a bunch of different studies trying to compare drinking to thirst to drinking according to plan. And it's certainly true that if you drink according to some to the, this plan to th- these sorts of plans, you can make sure you lose less fluid. If you just drink according to thirst, you will get more dehydrated. But the, but in these studies, it didn't it didn't make a big it didn't make any significant difference to uh, to race performance. Uh, and and my you know as we've said these 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 lab studies have some limitations in applying them to the real world because it's not the same when you're out on a marathon, uh, trying to drink. But I I also think, you know, I suspect what you, what these studies are actually finding is that being dehydrated probably does have some mild negative effects being mildly dehydrated. Um, but rehydrating also has some negative effects. Like I was saying earlier that it's when you're running hard, if you're racing, drinking is a problem. It's uncomfortable. It makes your stomach, you know, it interferes with your breathing and it may, may upset your stomach. Uh, so those two things may counterbalance. So drinking to thirst may come out in the wash for, in a lot of situations, maybe may a sort of equally good strategy, not because it has hydrate dehydration has no effect, but because the pros and cons balance on average. That Now the, the catch is that that may not apply for everybody. Some people may be more sensitive, you know, have more sensitive to thirst than others. Uh, and there's certainly evidence that you get less sensitive to thirst as you get older. Uh, and some people may have unusually high sweat rates uh, or, uh, you know, other factors that make them a little bit more, a little bit less sensitive to the the risk of dehydration. So, um, so that's another reason that I'd be a little hesitant to just say nobody needs to worry about drinking other than just paying attention to when they're thirsty. I think I land where you landed in that most recent article, which is to say, if you're in training or going about your day-to-day life, drinking a thirst is a perfectly acceptable approach because you're not going to, you're not going to have issues. But in a race, 
I probably land on the side of planning for it because it makes me personally feel at ease to know that I have a plan, to know that I'm not going to end up thirsty at mile 25 thinking about that versus trying to press my hardest at the end if the time matters. So the, the, plus the, the, the practical elements that you mentioned of you know having to plan so that you don't end up in a situation where you're without when you need it. The, the, the one thing I'll add to that is, you know, I, I'm with you too. If, if, if I'm talking to a competitive marathoner, absolutely, I'm going to suggest that they uh, they plan their hydration for during the race uh, and that they rehearse it in training so that it's they're comfortable with that hydration protocol. Uh, but maybe one thing we can take from this is that if you miss a stop, if something goes wrong and you drop your cup, and this happens to the elites all the time, they miss their bottles or whatever, uh, the thought that goes through your head shouldn't be, Oh man, now I'm going to be behind on my hydration and now I'm going to, you know, my head's going to explode and I'm going to catch fire and, and die. It, it should be, eh, no big deal. I'll get some, some fluids at the next stop. That it's, it, that it makes sense to plan, to pre-plan your hydration plan and to hydrate reasonably aggressively during the race, but it's probably not a big deal. And if you miss a couple stops, it's, it's unlikely to have a serious effect. It's going to be okay. Yeah. So I want to finish this discussion talking not about running, but fascinating article you wrote about Colin O'Brady who recently became was it the first solo unsupported person across the South Pole well that's a that's a question for uh, up for debate although although I know it's up for debate because I, I just was recently googling it myself and I'm like oh my gosh this guy doesn't even get credit we'll get to that argue that controversy in a second but you actually interviewed Colin before he was going to leave and talk to him about his nutrition planning, basically trying to get, figure out how to carry on a sled 8,000 calories a day, which is the math that they figured out that he needed in order to sustain what ended up being 54 days of an effort. I think he had planned for 70 days of nutrition out there. I think he initially planned 70, but just before, right before he left, he, he, his sled was too heavy and he chucked off five or six days. So I think he only had okay. bandwidth so he for back. 64 maybe. So first of all, and he was competing with another explorer at the time. He ended up finishing just a few days behind him, I believe. Yep. But he crossed 300 miles in the south, across the South Pole, across Antarctica, took him 54 days carrying... I think it was 300 pounds worth of food to start. And obviously that shrunk as he went covering anywhere from 14 to 20 miles per day, at least on average, depending on the section that he was in. Apparently he made one final massive push to, to get to the finish line on the last, in the last couple of days. Was this, was this just not a fascinating discussion to have with this guy about what he was about to do? Yeah. It's kind of crazy. It, it, it was cool. I, so the the backstory is I I was doing this sort of weird hiking event in Vermont where you hike up. Um, I'm um, I'm already blanking on the name of the mountain, but um, you hike up a, a modest Vermont mountain 17 times to cover the the the, the, the total height of Everest. And uh, and and Colin and I you did the event. Yeah, Colin and I were both there giving a little talk beforehand, and we both did the event um, hiking up. It took I think it took me about 12 hours, but you had, was that right? 12? No, it took me about 18 hours. Something, wow. Something like what that. was the total elevation gain? Uh, 29,000 feet, 29,029. Okay. So, uh, <laughs> and then you, t- you take the gondola wow. down, so you, at least you don't have to do the down. 
Oh, so you're just doing the ups. Yeah. Wow. It was a, it was a, okay. How many miles? Uh, I think it was, um, yeah, I don't know, a mile and a half per loop. So something like 25, 20, 26 miles, something like that. I, I can't remember exactly, wow. but somewhere in the okay. vicinity. Um, they, they allowed 36 hours to, for you to complete it. And you, you know, they had tents set up at the bottom of the, the ski hill, Mount Stratton. That was the place where it was held. Um, okay. anyway, long, long background story to say that, you know, he, he gave this talk about stuff he'd done and, and, and I, I found it more interesting than I expected. I, I don't have huge patience for, for, you know, motivational talks, but he was a, an interesting guy and, and I enjoyed his talk. So during this hiking event where we were all sort of hiking up and down this mountain, I ended up hiking with him for a little while and, and chatting more. And, and this, this question of the fuel, you know, as I, he, he had just, he was just on the verge of announcing this Antarctic mission. And so, I was asking him about it and the, this fueling question came up and it, 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 yeah, it became clear. This was a really interesting, almost a, a sort of physics or thermodynamics question uh, because it's like, well, if, if you need to bring enough food, why don't you just bring more food? Well, then the sled gets heavier. Well, then why don't you bring less food? Well, then we don't have enough food to make it across. And so, you, right. you, you know, it's, it's, it seems simple when you put it that way, but it becomes a, a really complicated optimization problem where you, you have to decide, are you going to try and keep it light and dash, go faster, or and then you'll finish it quicker, or you can bring more food, but it's going to slow you down. It's going to take you longer, so you'll need more food. There's, you know, there's five different moving variables or whatever in this equation where you're trying to figure out how much food to bring. And most people who've done these Antarctic expeditions in the past have opted for, you know, somewhere in the vicinity of 5,000 calories, uh, which in some cases has meant that they've starved to death and died, uh, like the the Scott expedition, or the, the people who've successfully done expeditions like this have lost, you know, 30, 40 50 pounds over the course of a couple months. And so he was, he was taking a different approach. He, he wanted to bring 8,000 calories a day, uh, almost exclusively in the form of this custom made, uh, you know, agglomeration of food that, the, that a company was making for him called the Colin bar, um, which was basically a one, one single bar was, was like a little over a thousand calories and he was going to eat, I don't know, four, four or five of these a day for two months so it's just it's like bricks of just food mashed together basically exactly so it just it's it sounded like an interesting uh so and he he figured that by forcing himself to to uh to chow down these bricks and that would give him the the fuel he needed to be able to to uh to, to get through this mission and have enough have enough energy and not be sort of uh, well, like the, the last guy or one of the last guys who tried it in 2016 was Henry Worsley, who died after something like 70 days out there. It's fascinating to me. I mean, one of the things you talk about in the bars, in the process of creating the bars, they were looking at food sensitivity and trying to figure out which foods he was sensitive to or that might cause inflammation in his body. And they found a list of things he they didn't want to put in there and a list of things that would, you know, one of the common things I guess that people use to try to get add calories in these types of expeditions is just add butter to everything. But butter showed some sensitivity issues with him. And so he ended up going more coconut oil to get those kind of dense fats. And with this whole idea that managing inflammation, when you're already pushing your body the way you are pulling a sled, skiing across ice, in extreme conditions it's it's interesting that they thought that 
inflammation caused by the food would matter. And so they specifically con- concocted this bar to con- contain things that they knew didn't mess with them. Yeah. And I, I thought that was cool. I, I thought it was cool too. Um, and I, I, I'm, I, I don't know, to be 100% honest, I don't know whether there's any any truth or, or relevance to that. You, you can you can make a a good mechanistic argument for why that should be the case that you know inflammation is inflammation and you look at Henry Worsley who died while well, he had systemic inflammation uh, and ended up with with uh, you know an, an ulcer probably that allowed uh, you know his 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 bacterial or his his intestinal lining got inflamed and that so who knows if that was all connected or or, or not. Um, I, 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 so when I was writing this article, I was like, well, what do I, how do I report this? Cause this is just this company st- that, that designed his food saying that, yeah, we think inflammation is going to be the real key. Well, no one's done studies on sending people across the Arctic with and without, you know, pro-inflammatory or anti-inflammatory foods. We don't really know whether it works. It's a theory. And so, um, I, I, I find it intriguing. I'd like to see it tested in, in the lab uh, to see whether, you know, people do better in prolonged endurance exertions uh, when they're eating foods that don't trigger inflammation in them. There's a lot. Inflammation is a hot topic these days in 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 research, in exercise research, and health research, and and looking at the connections between different kinds of inflammation and whether that can have an influence on performance. Um, and so, I I thought that was a cool thing they were doing. I just have no idea whether it had any any relevance or any bearing whatsoever on the final outcome. Is yeah, it real or not? It's hard not? to know. It's hard to know. And, and, and have you talked to him since? I haven't. You, you know, he's, he's a famous guy now. So I, 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 <laughs> I, I it, not that, it, you know, he's too, he's too cool for yeah, school. I, not that he, he, it's not like he's not returning my calls or anything, but I guess, uh, for me, I, I, as, as a journalist, I, I, I'm less interested in talking to the people who are already being interviewed by 52 other people. Cause I have, <laughs> I, I have very little confidence that I'll, I'll think of the, the one question that no one has asked them. So I'm more interested in talking to them before they're famous. I'm fascinated though on that about how much attention he gets versus the Rudd who finished second that in, at least in this situation, I, I would imagine that the differences are stark in terms of the coverage they're, they're getting, but there is this controversy that I was reading about today that, that certain parts of the Explorer community are saying, you know, this was not unaided because he was doing a big chunk of it on, on this ice highway that was basically manicured ice for him to be able to move more quickly on skis. And also they're saying he didn't actually cross all of Antarctica from coast to coast because I guess he had excluded certain ice shelves or I'm not exactly sure the the geography of it, of that argument, but that's kind of fascinating. Have you done any reading on this? Like, what do you, what do you think? Is this legit or not? Yeah, it's interesting. I, I was totally unaware of these sorts of subtleties when I wrote that article. Um, and I, I sort of didn't think about it at all until there was a New York Times article. Um, I can't remember, maybe just after he finished or or just before he finished, uh, pointing out that you know there was a guy. I'm I'm, I'm going to butcher his name, Borg Usland or something uh, along those lines, a Scandinavian guy, back in the '90s who crossed the the continent uh, solo and unaided. But there's a difference between like unassisted and unaided or something. So he didn't have any external help, but he had a, a little home homemade little sail that he attached to his sled when he had a when he had a tailwind to help push the sail. So th- so they were considering well that he had help because he used a little sail on his sled, and and I was thinking and you know 
when I'd heard about this guy, Uslan, but I assumed he was basically sailing a boat across the Antarctic, across the ice, <laughs> as opposed to, you know, man hauling a sled, but also, you know, pulling out a little handmade sail occasionally. So then there was a, the question of, well, you know, what, what are they really doing that Uslan didn't do? And Uslan went farther, did a, did a, did a longer route. And then, the, as you said, there's these other issues that have come up since that I, I was totally unaware of the, this, you know, first of all, that, you know, do you, so the, the route that, O'Brady and Rudd did was basically across the landmass, but they didn't cross the ice shelves. And what critics are saying is, well, this this ice shelves—they're not sea ice; it's land ice that's just come on. It's 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 part of the continent; it never goes away, and it's formed from from the glaciers, not from the sea. sea. It's not saltwater ice, um, so it's it's considered part of the continent by almost everyone who's tried to do this before. And then there's this road to the South Pole, which is really just a, a you know a sort of smoothed bit of ice that makes it easier to to get supplies to the North Pole. Um, and ultimately, you know, where do I come down on it? It's like I wish I'd known some of those details when when I wrote my article because I would have liked to put in some of that context, give some credit to Usland as the guy who made it across solo, and 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 point out the differences between uh, you know some of the routes which are you know significantly longer and harder compared to this route but ultimately yeah. it went, you know in this in this world of like modern day quote-unquote exploring everything is a first right like everyone finds an angle it's like i'm the first left-handed uh redhead to, <laughs> to to climb this mountain on a tuesday um and you know it, it is what it is and, and i think what they did is is something that hasn't been done before and it's it's cool it's it's not as cool as it would have been if no one had ever done anything like it uh, or if it was the hardest possible way of crossing the Antarctic. And I think it's worth understanding and knowing that, but it's also not like they, they, you know, they cheated and lied or, 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 or anything. They just, they picked a route that, that has some justification and they did that route. And, uh, and it, and it was hard, maybe not quite as hard as I, as I probably thought when I first wrote the article, but still pr- pretty, pretty amazingly hard. Yeah, 300 miles over ice, 54 days. I think it's a lot more than 300. I think it's sled. more like 900 miles or something like that, if I'm remembering. Oh, was it? Yeah, yeah. Ha- oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. Nine- yeah, well, yeah, he covered 900 miles, but I guess it's 300 miles as the crow flies. Um, oh, right, because they went through the South Pole. About, so it's a bit of yeah, a... Yeah, something about the angles and, and sort of the back and forth. So anyway, it's insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's still insane. So, <laughs> so. so I think f- full credit and just uh, I think it's worth in these discussions to acknowledge that others have done some pretty cool things down in the Antarctic too, like Borges yeah. in the 90s. It also just underscores for me that and, and, and Colin O'Brady, I mean, he's a he's a triathlete. He's got some serious explorer like resume things on his resume. But in a lot of ways, he's just kind of a normal dude who likes to push himself in extreme ways. And so, I don't know, for me, when I see these things, it motivates me to find what does extreme mean for me and and go find it. Because it's going to be a small, tiny, tiny sliver or fraction of what somebody like Colin O'Brady would do. But if he can do that, then I can do something much tinier <laughs> if... If yeah, and, and I would emphasize that his his explorer's resume is, you know, a few years ago he had zero explorer resume, exploring resume, and he just basically decided he wanted to do the Explorer's Grand Slam, which is the seven summits plus the two poles, uh, and he did it. And and again, in terms of, you know, these sort of 
quote unquote records. He did it in, he was the fastest person to do it. He, from, from first to last of these uh, nine missions. Uh, But before that he'd done very little. So when he, his only Antarctic experience was as a, as a client on guided tours from what I understand. So, um, you know, he was willing to jump, he's, he, he's willing to jump in with both feet and uh, do things physically that I couldn't do and take risks that I wouldn't want to take. But like you, I, I look at it and I say, that's, that's pretty cool. And I'd like to, uh, you know, unshackle some of my own self-imposed limits and, and go and do some cool stuff. Hell yeah. With that idea, we'll, we'll wrap this discussion. Thanks Alex again for joining me your fifth time. It's always a pleasure to talk about you and, and this was fun to kind of go through as I'm calling it the smorgasbord of sweat science articles. So I think we covered covered a lot of ground. Thanks again. Yeah, it's fun to, gosh, it's fun to remember some of the things I wrote about. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, thank, thank you for the conversation and for the opportunity. So there you go. Alex Hutchinson again, of course. Go back and listen to some of the other episodes we've had with him. Again, he's been on episode 48, 64, 81, and 110. If you haven't already listened to 110, I definitely recommend that's a good one on the science of recovery with Christy Eschwanden. Thanks again to Alex for being a good friend of the show. Always interesting, always good insights coming from him. So there you go. That's it. Episode 117 of the Running Rogue podcast. As always, you can check us out at roguerunning.com or follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.